Welcome to Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent, a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, God is one. Think back to the last time you applied for something, a job, graduate school, college, etc. Chances are you needed someone to give you a recommendation, perhaps even write a letter of recommendation. So who did you ask to recommend you? I imagine that you tried to pick people who you thought would give you a good recommendation. I mean, surely no one would intentionally ask someone to write them a letter of recommendation who they expected would say something less than stellar about them. And when I say stellar, I mean it. Over my life, I've been tasked with reading many a letter of recommendation for applicants to various programs, and if someone were to say you were good, or better than average, or pretty much anything less than you hung the moon or similar types of effusive praise, I'd take that as a red flag. Hopefully in the social contract, if the person you asked didn't think they could write that sort of letter for you, they just kindly told you no. And presumably, not only did you try to choose someone who would write you an excellent letter of recommendation, but you probably tried to find someone who had similar experience to the position you were choosing, or probably someone who was in the highest position you could get. A letter from the chair of the department probably would carry more weight than from the teaching assistant you impressed during recitation. Today in the lectionary, we are faced with a challenging passage from St. Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, and one that has frequently been twisted by being taken out of context. It's easy to read something like, God has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life, or what once had glory has come to have no glory at all or in sayings like the ministry of death carved in stone by which St. Paul means the law delivered on Sinai, to think that St. Paul is trashing the old covenant. In fact, in many newer Christian traditions, you see this passage used in just that fashion. Yet when we know all of Paul, we know that not only he thinks the old covenant was something good in the past, but that he thinks it remains so. In Romans 7, St. Paul says, the law is indeed holy, and the commandment is holy and just and good. And in Romans 3, are we then abolishing the law through faith? May it never be. Rather, we are establishing law. And yet another in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture, by which St. Paul means at the time the Old Testament, is God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, for conviction, for correction, for instruction in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, fully equipped for every good work. But lest I be accused of taking these passages out of context, it's important to recognize that St. Paul is talking about the law in a similar way in Romans 7 as the way he's talking about it in today's epistle reading in 2 Corinthians. For there he does say something that is critical for us to fully understand today's passage. He says, but now we are discharged from the law, dead to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. Yet what is it that held us captive? It might sound like he's saying the law, and I certainly can see how you would, could read it that way. 
especially when Paul says the ministration or dispensation of death was carved on those stones carried down from Sinai and that the letter kills. But I'm here to tell you that that isn't what, that, that it isn't the law that held us captive. But what was it? Well, you're gonna have to wait just a little longer for the answer to that as we step out again for a little more context to help us understand this challenging but important message from St. Paul and its fullness. There's a saying that a good face is a letter of recommendation. In English, it's often attributed to Queen Elizabeth I, who may very well have been prone to say it, but it's, much old, it's a much older saying found in Latin, uh, Greek, classical writings, specifically, specifically those of um, Deozesis Leazarus, try to say that three times fast, I don't want to trail this morning, who wrote in the third century. The meaning is pretty straightforward as Proverbs go. That meaning being, right, that if someone looks good on the outside, it tends to make people think good things about them on the inside. And this is the very problem that St. Paul is addressing in his epistle today. And in fact, how he introduces this curious passage that we find ourselves discussing today. If we just go back to the beginning of the third chapter of Corinthians, where we started our epistle reading today with the fourth verse, if we go back to the first the three verses before are, are we beginning again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then St. Paul says, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on your hearts to be known and read by all men, that you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God not on tab tables of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. What St. Paul is saying is that a good face is not a good letter of recommendation, but rather a good heart. A good heart is a letter of recommendation. When St. Paul starts going off about the dispensation of death and that the letter kills but the spirit gives life, this is what he's saying. When St. Paul says that when the ministration of death came carved in letters on stone, he soon after commends those same letters carved on stone, saying that it came with such splendor that the Israelites could not look at Moses' face because of his brightness. The law was an incredible grace. It came to a cruel and violent world where our worst injustices today would pale. For example, recall the case of Dinah's rape, which was a horrible crime, but instead of bringing justice to the perpetrator, Dinah's brothers, Simon and Levi, lied to the perpetrator and his entire clan, saying that they should become part of their family. And moreover, they betrayed God's merciful covenant with the Israelites by using an underhanded scheme whereby Simon and Levi offered to make things right by having them become part of God's covenant family by having all the men in their tribe circumcised. And then on the third day, when we know everything hurts the worst, they took their swords and killed all the men, the entire tribe. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, everything in the city and the field. They took all their wealth, all their children, all their wives, everything they had in their houses. In such a world, the law, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, which itself sounds so violent and unjust to our modern ears, would have been a radical departure from how people outside of the Israelite people treated each other. It would have represented a completely new justice, an incredible grace and mercy in a broken world. 
The law was indeed glorious. And to the world around the Israelites, it was a good letter of recommendation that they had an amazing God like no other. In that law was the great commandment, the Shema Israel. In Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. I heard that a few minutes ago. And it goes on to say, And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It is these words that are found on the scrolls and the teflon or phylacteries, the boxes that Orthodox Jews wear on their foreheads and arms during weekday morning prayers. It is those words that are in the menuzas, the decorative cases on the doorposts of Jewish homes. What St. Paul is saying and what Jesus was also saying is that the Jewish leadership at the time had a good face, but not a good heart. They were showing all the right externalities, they had, but they had not somehow yet fully taken in the part of the Shema Israel where it says, what I command you today shall be on your heart. Likewise, in Leviticus 19, we hear that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And again, we hear the importance of the heart, even in the Old Testament law. And finally on this point, I'm always frustrated when folks casually compare the Ten Commandments to other ancient law codes, like the Code of Hammurabi. First, the Ten Commandments applied to everyone, including the king. But that's, and that's very unusual, obviously, in ancient law codes and even in some modern ones. But that's not the most important feature. What is the last or the last two of the Ten Commandments about, depending on how you divide them? Coveting, right? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, or his slaves, or his animals, or anything of thy neighbor. But coveting isn't a crime that I can convict you for. You might call it a thought crime. Those aren't prevalent in ancient law codes or any other law codes for that matter. Because the only person who can convict you of that is God. It's a heart crime. And that's what makes the Jewish law very different from other law codes. It's what's in your heart that matters. So St. Paul, as he says elsewhere, is not abolishing the law through faith or through the Holy Spirit. St. Paul is saying that the grace of the Spirit so outshines the grace of the stone tablets that the Spirit dwelling in us is St. Paul's letter of recommendation to the world. It's Jesus's letter of recommendation to all those around us, or is it? What holds us captive? I told you we'd get back to it. What holds us captive is not the law. Instead, what holds us captive is our hearts, I hope I've demonstrated to you. Because if our hearts are hard, then the seed of the law will fall on rocky soil. As the law had indeed fallen onto the hard hearts of stone of some of the Jewish leadership at the time, 
that Jesus lived. For Jesus said, they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay on men's shoulders and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. The Pharisees put burdens on people rather than taking and sharing and shouldering those burdens with people like Jesus did. If we can't soften our hearts so that they can find life in the commandments, then we will in fact die by the law. The law will be the burden to us. As St. Paul continues in Romans 7, that as I mentioned is in some ways parallel to this passage, St. Paul says that if it hadn't been for the law, he would not have known sin. And we know that the natural consequence of sin is separation from God, which is separation from life itself, and therefore the consequence of sin is death. So if the law teaches us what sin is, then it also teaches us what brings us closer to God, what unites us with God, which is to keep those commandments for us not to sin. And indeed, Jesus Christ himself says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. But we cannot keep the commandments on the outside and inside be ravening wolves. We cannot wear our phylacteries and give alms for all to see and have hearts of stone. The law worked from the outside in. And for some, that wasn't good enough to plow and soften their hearts so that they could carry those commandments, not on their face and arms, but in their heart. But that's the good news that Paul proclaims to us today and that I wish to share with you. We have a greater glory, a greater law. We know how our righteousness can exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. God promises us that the Holy Spirit, his very self, now dwells in us, in our hearts. God writes in our hearts the commandments. And now God is working among his people from the inside out. God won't quit when his approaches to reaching our hearts are thwarted. If his approach won't work from the outside in, well, he'll go from the inside out. And that's what God does through the Holy Spirit. That's what God does in the Eucharist when we feed on him and take his very body and blood into our body and it becomes part of our blood. And yet, God isn't going to violate our free will. He's going to respect our boundaries and our choices. So if now, instead of keeping him out of your heart, we're going to keep him in one of the back rooms of our heart, then he'll still be distant. We will still be cut off from his love and his life-giving spirit. We will not be a good letter of recommendation for God. God is right there. God is chasing you. God is pursuing you. Are you carrying the commandments in your heart to love God and love your neighbor? Are you putting burdens on your neighbor? Who do you listen to? the still small voice of God, or the talking heads on TV, the podcast pundits, or the 24-hour news networks, or the newspaper that best aligns with your politics? Will you listen to your God-fearing bishops to whom your care has been entrusted as their flock, or to some random laity or clergy who will not even tell you what bishop they're under when asked? Who did you write your letter of recommendation for? A prince or princess of this world who the psalmist tells us not to trust in? Or is your letter for our Lord, our God, Jesus Christ? And then what does your letter of recommendation say? And let me be clear, the letter of recommendation you write for Jesus Christ is the most important letter of recommendation that you will ever write. Why? 
because it's the letter that gets him admitted into the hearts and minds and souls of every human being for their salvation and toward the betterment of this world right now. So does your letter say that you, like Christ, are selflessly shouldering and sharing your neighbor's burdens or that you're selfish and self-righteous, laying more burdens upon them? Perhaps it would be better if who your letter is for and what it says is aligned. For if you say it's for Christ and you're laying burdens, then you're not giving him the recommendation he deserves. If you say it's for Christ and you're spewing hate or regurgitating the latest talking points or casting the first 50th 500 stone towards the latest social media punching bag, then you are writing a poor letter of recommendation and sending a red flag to those who would like otherwise to admit Christ. If you say it's for Christ and you aren't following his commandments, then we must wonder if when we need his letter of recommendation to the Father before the dread judgment seat, he will simply say, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. And yet take heart, my brothers and sisters. You can write a better letter, and you won't even have to take up a pen. That is not to say you won't have work to do, but Christ is calling you to his table today so that he can begin that work from the inside out. Christ is calling you home again so that you can unlock, so that his Holy Spirit can unlock more doors in your heart. What St. Paul tells us is that the Holy Spirit within us will write the letter if we merely open our hearts to him. If we will let go of this broken, messed up world that pumps up every little thing into something of cosmic proportion. If we let go of this world so that we can see the one thing that is truly of cosmic proportion, or shall I say, the thing that's bigger than any cosmic proportion, then you will find God, a loving God, who seeks a personal relationship with you, who seeks to bring you from death to life, who has released you from the death that sin brings upon you so that the law is no longer relevant and so that you can truly be free. So now that you are free, how will you use that freedom? What will you say now when you can say anything? What letter of recommendation will you write for Jesus and his church? I pray that in a world that needs it so badly that you will write a stellar letter that freely offers to everyone, your friend and your perceived foe, hope in our time of despair, love in our time of hate, lightened burdens when everything seems so hard, a shoulder to help carry the load, company for the lonely. And of course, that's just the start. Wouldn't seeing those things said about you cheer your heart? So make it so, and help our Lord be accepted into more and more hearts everywhere by your letter of recommendation. Amen. Talks at Advent, homilies and reflections given at the Church of the Advent a Western Rite Orthodox mission in Atlanta, Georgia.